Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Hello everyone, welcome to our Tuesday lunchtime talk. Really fantastic to see you. Thank you so much for joining us. My name's Lisa Slade and I'm the Assistant Director here at AGSA. And I'm joined by the incredible Karina Morgan, who will be signing today for us. In fact, Karina signs pretty much every Tuesday and for all of our major events. Very lucky to have her as part of the team. We are on Ghana country. The Art Gallery of South Australia stands on Ghana land. And I'd like to pay my respect to elders past, present, and those of the future. Agsa Ghana Miana Yatanga Yuandi Natalia. Now, we're doing one of those things today with our lunchtime talk where we're going to be embracing or at least touching on a number of topics at once. We're at the crossroads. It seems appropriate to be at the crossroads and to be talking about intersections or intersectionality. We're standing here in an exhibition that I put together during our closure, and I have already given a lunchtime talk on the works in this exhibition. All of our lunchtime talks are available online and they're on our SoundCloud. So if you're interested in in-depth discussions about these works, go and have a listen on SoundCloud. So I'm standing in the context of this exhibition. I'm thinking a lot about NAIDOC week because it's NAIDOC week this week. NAIDOC week, as you know, is postponed from July. And one of our key charters here at the Art Gallery of South Australia is an increasing and ever mindfulness of the fact that we are on Ghana country and also our celebration of artists and particularly in the case of an exhibition like Tarnandi Downstairs, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists. Hands up if you've seen the exhibition Open Hands Downstairs, just to give me a little, it's my research. As you, many of you know, we can't afford formal research, so this is the way I do it. Hands up so I can actually count you. That's 15 people, Annika. It's probably about three quarters of the group. Open Hands opened a month ago and is on until the end of January and is, of course, our annual presentation of Tarnandi. But third, and perhaps most excitingly for some of you, this week is also the Feast Festival. So this is a week where we get to celebrate and draw attention to the power and also the political significance of positioning human rights for every single individual in society. And I thought, for a start, I was asked to give this talk, and I thought, surely there's somebody better to talk about this than me. And then we decided here at the Art Gallery that to draw upon this exhibition and the theme of colour would be a really interesting starting point. So I'm going to talk about three key concepts. I'm going to talk about the idea of drag, and I'm going to give you an art historian's approach to drag. I'm going to talk about the idea of colour, and specifically the rainbow, and today's lecture is actually called The Rainbow Connection, which means that I have had Kermit the Frog in my head all day. And the third thing I'm gonna talk about is the idea of queering content, queering content. I'm gonna start with a third. I'm hoping that all of you have seen the work Nomenclatures by Troy Anthony Bayless, an artist who identifies as queer, who is also Aboriginal, whose work is in the vestibule. If you have not seen the work, could I encourage you to leave the gallery via the vestibule today so you get a chance to see it? Because what I'm gonna try and do right now is to paint a picture with words. Troy uses the idea 
of queering colonialism, queering colonialism. He looks at the idea of our history, but brings to it an unpicking or an unpacking of the way in which we have read both race and gender specifically. On the wall, the northern wall of the vestibule, are a series of queen plates, queen plates as he's called them. Now many of you, I think, you may have heard of a queen plate, but I reckon a lot of you will have heard of a king plate. The king plate is a gorgette that was used particularly during the Macquarie period. Governor Lachlan Macquarie was the governor of New South Wales between 1810 and 1821. Macquarie introduced, I would say, a pernicious and dubious object that became known as a king plate that he would bestow upon Aboriginal people. If you see representations from the early 19th century of Aboriginal people, you will often see them wearing a king plate or a queen plate. Probably the most famous is the portrait of Bungaree, which was made by Augustus Earl. We have a version of one of those many portraits that Earl made of Bungaree and it says King of Botany Bay. So the king plate was a way of distinguishing an Aboriginal person, which placed them in a precarious situation vis-a-vis -vis their community, because it identified them as distinct from their community. It gave them power or status, but also placed them in a position of liminality, not one thing or another, but placed somewhere between. Does that make sense? Troy Anthony Bayliss, as someone who absolutely identifies with the queer community, has said, I'm gonna take this notion of the king plate and use it to investigate both gender and race. So a descendant of the Jawan people of Queensland, he's taken the queen plate and the king plate and rather than making them strictly from metal, he's made them from what? Mesh, glow mesh, to be precise. Now, if there was ever a material that kind of exuded camp abandon, it would be glow mesh. And perhaps even better still, faux mesh, as it's commonly known. Glow mesh is the patented name of the Oriton product. Faux mesh is anything in its imitation. And this leads me to the theme of my talk today, it's really about identity. My favourite, one of my favourite quotes is by Oscar Wilde, no less, who said that you're born naked and then everything else is drag. <laughs> everything else becomes a performance or an assumption, an identity that is either thrust upon you or is called from within. And I think that relates to all of us in this room, regardless of how we define ourselves. All of us know the costume that is identity at this point in the 21st century. Now for Troy, he has taken the idea of glow mesh and faux mesh and made a connection right back to 19th century colonial Australia. I think it's a very clever work. What's emblazoned on the glow mesh and the faux mesh? Does anyone know? Place names, place names. Are they just place names? 
What else are they? Brian, tell me what they are. I need audience participation today. Identities. Yeah, absolutely. As drag names, to be very, very precise. So some of the names have this wonderful kind of euphemistic quality. Fanny Bay, for instance. Yeah? So he actually draws upon these places, real places, places that could be found on Google Maps, but through his querying of the colonial and the post-colonial, we start to think, oh, that's interesting. That is both a place and a name. So they start to become badges of honour, badges of performance and embracing performativity when he creates these shields, in a sense, and places them on the Art Gallery of South Australia's wall. Language is very, very powerful. And part of Troy's genius, I think, and you can see it in the works on the East and Western Walls, is this idea of dissecting and considering the, the way in which language can give us an identity, and he shakes it off. So by layering place, topography, and specifically the idea of country over these place names, he asks us to question, he asks us to queer. So he asks us to actually queer our own history, to reconsider our own history. The drag names become a point of kind of reference for this notion of a colonial drag or a national drag. Troy and I had a great conversation about this time last week at the Art Gallery ahead of his talk last Friday night for, for the um, festival and ahead of my talk today for the Feast Festival. And he was talking to me about drag and the origin of drag. You can actually listen to, I think you can listen to Troy's talk. Is that right? Okay, but it will be. So Troy's talk from last Friday will be up on our, um, as part of our SoundCloud as well. We were talking about drag. Does anyone know the origin of the, the word drag? Shakespeare. Yeah, Shakespeare. Shakespeare. And it is an acronym or an annotation, as you know, D-R-A-G, dressed as a girl. And Shakespeare would use the annotation dressed as a girl, the D-R meaning dressed, dressed as a girl, along the, he would annotate the pages of his plays. As you all know, until relatively recently in theatrical history, men performed the role of women. So the word drag, it's believed, has its origin in Shakespeare and in that very annotation. Now drag becomes much more than an annotation or a sideline in the marginalia of a theatrical tradition. It becomes a suit of armour. Drag becomes more than a kind of limp personification of female wiles. It becomes a way of challenging, blurring gender boundaries and playing with those boundaries. So drag is not just about RuPaul's drag race, as much as we love it. Drag is actually about questioning the status quo and refusing to be defined in singular, presumptuous terms. And here the distinction between sex and gender becomes really important. Essentially, Oscar Wilde was reminding us of the distinction between sex and gender. He said, we're born naked, we're born as a sex, and or an intersex, and everything else is drag. Everything else is the performance of the thing that we call gender. 
Hence my point about us all, regardless of our own interests and proclivities and, and identities, understanding that idea. Now it's time for me to talk a little bit about the rainbow and I must admit that I reckon lots of you will have more to say about this than I would. I'm certainly not an expert in terms of the origin of the rainbow as a symbol of gay pride. Does anyone know where it comes from? Drag comes from Shakespeare. The rainbow as a symbol comes from? Very good, The Wizard of Oz, Germany. Yeah, interesting. Are you referring to, are you thinking about the pink triangle in particular? No? Okay. Yeah, well, it, has, it has, has a very mixed history. So let me talk you through a few possibilities and a few tenets. The first is that it's first used in the 1970s in a gay pride march. And it's, I'm just gonna get my notes so I don't mess up any of the key dates because this is being recorded. <laughs> Most of you know that dates are not my strength. I like to say I'll get it right. I'll get the decade right. It was 1978. Gilbert Baker, who was a San Franciscan gay rights activist, he was also an army veteran and an artist, first used the rainbow flag for a specific pride march. Now, he had been encouraged or requested to do so by, I think, the now famous Harvey Milk. So Harvey Milk, who was assassinated the following year, who was elected and outwardly gay in his politics, uh, he requested that the flag be made. From that moment on, it became an incredibly powerful symbol. That's 1978. But do you know what? We can trace it back much earlier than that. Someone back here said the Wizard of Oz. And it, yes. Symbol of peace going right back, sure. A symbol of diversity moving right back, a symbol of light and redemption, a symbol of inclusivity, all of those colours, you're absolutely right. But it's here that the Wizard of Oz starts to play a particular role. There are so many threads here, it's kind of exciting. I'm sure there are entire PhDs written on the subject, so excuse my shorthand. When we talk about a friend of Dorothy, the Dorothy that we're talking about is, of course, Dorothy Gale. Dorothy Gale is the heroine of The Wizard of Oz, played, of course, by Judy Garland. When we think about The Wizard of Oz, and this might just be me, I think about the kind of mid-century, well, actually, I think the first Technicolor production in the world was of The Wizard of Oz. So I'm just gonna check my notes again to get my dates right. 1939, the first publication of the first presentation of the MGM epic, The Wizard of Oz. And The Wizard of Oz is indeed the first film to receive the full Technicolor treatment. Highly appropriate, don't you think? This idea of a life lived in Technicolor seems to make a lot of sense. So, a friend of Dorothy's. Now, we think about that as 1939, but the book was published in the year 1900. So the expression, a friend of Dorothy's, gains currency in the First World War. And it's used to distinguish some soldiers from others in the First World War. 
The Dorothy's an interesting one once you start to do a little bit of research because not only does it link us to Dorothy Gale, it also links us back to Dorothy Parker. And Dorothy Parker celebrated, celebrated bisexual who talked a lot about her particular interests in breaking down gender binaries and thinking very openly about sex, gender and identity. So a friend of Dorothy's has a, a 120 year old history at least. Now the colour thing is really interesting because colour has long been associated with identifying oneself and when you mentioned Germany my mind went immediately to the pink triangle that the Nazi regime used as a marker of homosexuality specifically and the way in which that has been subverted repurposed, in some ways, I guess, repatriated to be a more positive symbol. It was Oscar Wilde, I should dedicate today to Oscar Wilde, but it was Oscar Wilde who wore a green carnation in his lapel, and it was his green carnation that was the signifier of his sexuality. In the town that I'm from, not a particularly open-minded town, I hope there aren't any other Novocastrians in the room, yellow socks were the mark of homosexuality and throughout most of the 20th century if you were openly gay, it was very risky to be openly gay in Newcastle and if you were you would wear, well not always if you were, but if you chose to, yellow socks became the marker. When Troy and I were chatting, Troy was performing various ideas and identities, he was saying the, that the word colourful is often used. And he was looking at these works over here by Tracy Moffat and alluding to and making a fantastic connection in this is her first jobs series with this notion of technicolour, of brightening things up, things being very, very colourful. Now what Tracy Moffat is doing here with mid-century, so mid-20th century imagery that she has borrowed. She's given it the uh, friend of Dorothy treatment, if you like, and she's run a kind of rainbow palette, a pastel rainbow palette, if you like. I don't know if that's contradiction in terms, but a kind of pastel palette over all of these images. In doing so, they've become more kind of instrumentalised. She's turned up the volume on these particular works. So you get this idea of their celebratory fun. This exhibition, I certainly didn't curate this exhibition for the Feast Festival per se, but it became immediately obvious to me that colour is something that has been even, I think, quite, quite recently disavowed. We think about the art history both art history in terms of drag and art history in terms of colour, they're really interesting histories. The 20th century becomes the enemy of colour. For artists, there is a, not a chromophilia, but a chromophobia that kicks in. If you think about the abstract movement of the 20th century, there was an expulsion of excessive colour. I think that's one of the reasons that this show hits you so dramatically. I think it's quite unusual to see this much colour. So I'm interested in the affect of that, in what it might mean. And getting back to the art historical origins of drag, those origins are fascinating in themselves, thinking back to Nazi Germany once again, 
my favourite female artist who used drag as a way of challenging the status quo is an artist called Claude Cowan, C-A-H-U-N, Claude Cowan. And she created uh, an alter ego, many alter egos, but one in particular of a male character, Lucy Schwab, and she would dress herself as Schwab in a suit. So when you look at Carlin's um, work after this lecture, you'll get a sense that she was performing masculinity at a time that it was incredibly restrictive to be feminine, in some ways continues to be so. There are probably even more famous examples of men dressing in drag, all the way from Marcel Duchamp. He created a female alter ego called Madame Rose C'est la vie. Rose C'est la vie is like Rose, that's life, C'est la vie, but he actually wrote it as Eros. He was, it was a bit of wordplay, Eros and Rose, E-R-O-S, R-O-S-E, Eros C'est la vie, Eros, that's life, eroticism, that's life. So he was garnering this kind of energy and attention around his sexual power when he decided to perform in drag and to make works of art in drag. Cindy Sherman is constantly in drag, you could argue. And Andy Warhol not only amplified the interests of drag queens and made films about drag queens, he also, including Candy Darling, one of my favourite drag queen kind of names, Candy Darling, he also, of course, dressed in a tip of the hat to Marcel Duchamp as a woman, Marilyn-esque, if you've seen that portrait of Warhol as kind of a Marilyn figure. Now, I mentioned before that I didn't curate this exhibition in response to Feast, but was all, also always conscious that we would be celebrating Feast in its company. And then it dawned on me, and what I didn't talk about in my last lecture about this exhibition was Gareth Sansom. So if you can't see Sansom because you're behind this wall, feel free to come on around to the other side or have a look later on. But there's a wonderful work over here by Gareth Sansom, a relatively new acquisition. It's called Wittgenstein's Brush with Vorticism. Now, Gareth Sansom has been dressing in drag since he was 22. He's now 80. I think he's 80, 79 or 80, and he still likes to cross-dress. And in talking to Gareth about this, he talks about it as his interest in unsettling gender, in disrupting. One of the first people that inspired him was actually Barry Humphreys. And he went to an exhibition opening and he walked up to a woman and said, can you tell me where Barry is? And she said, I have no idea, darling. And of course it was Barry. So he's been long interested in challenging, challenging traditional gender norms. Now, whilst you can't necessarily in this particular work get a sense of Sansom in drag, as you can in his photographic works, and if you go to our website, you'll see him in drag. He likes to perform in particular, what's the name of the actress that was in Vertigo? Does anyone remember? Hitchcock's Vertigo. She had like platinum hair. It'll come to me in a minute. Anyway, he, she is one of his favourites. What was that? Kim, yeah, Kim Novak. You are absolutely right, PJ. Kim Novak. So he likes to dress up as Novak and Collins and all of those stars. 
He likes to put on his fishnet stockings and any stockings, I think, actually, and he continues to do that. He's been dressing in drag for 60 years. I think it fuels his practice. I think it changes the way he makes paintings. And even though these paintings may not fit neatly within the kind of genre, if you like, or explicitly within this idea of queer culture, they are certainly deconstructing the norm. It strikes me that there's a conversation happening between Gareth and an artist who was working 100 years prior, and that is Dame Laura Knight. And I'm going to do, I'm going to break all my rules. I always say to the gallery guides, never talk about something if it's not in the room. And I've broken that rule already today, haven't I? But Dame Laura Knight is probably best known for her self-portrait, which is in the National Portrait Gallery in London. If you don't know it, go and look it up, please. Because I think it's one of the most important works in the history of the 20th century. It, there was a lot of discussion around Knight's sexuality, particularly after this work was made. It was painted in 1915. She was the only woman in a 250-year history who was permitted to into the Royal Academy with full membership rights. That was quite controversial. It didn't happen overnight, as you can well imagine. Full membership rights meant that you could draw from the naked body. And there's much consternation and discussion about whether the naked body is indeed Laura Knight's or her model. I suspect it's a model, but the point is that Knight blurs that very idea or that very reckoning. And when we look at the figure, it's a three-part painting, so you've got Knight dressed, and you can just see the back of Knight looking over her shoulder, and she's looking at the model and then at her own painting. All of that's kind of happening at once. There's a triangulation that happens. And I think there's a triangulation that's happening through this exhibition in terms of some of those fluid identities. So whether you identify as homosexual, whether you identify as queer, whether you identify as somebody who belongs to a specific community, I think the idea of subverting queering culture, questioning through every representation, is a response, I take that as a responsibility. It's incumbent upon us at this point in the 21st century to think about identity in the most creative terms, particularly as I stand here as a feminist art historian. I think it's my job to look very closely and very critically at those ideas of identity, those kind of straitjackets that have prevailed throughout art history in terms of identity. What does Feast do for us? Feast gives us a chance to be out about that. Feast gives us a chance to get out of the art historical closet and to not assume that there, are, there is a kind of monoculture of identity that underpins art history. Because I actually believe that it's through art that artists have been able, individuals have been able to perform and deconstruct and reassert a ma all manner of possible identities. A final note and tip of the hat to the wonderful Annabelle Collette. Because this, if this is not queering knitting, <laughs> then I don't know what is. Now what Collette is doing here so succinctly is taking this idea of a craft form associated with a specific gender. But moreover, knitting is a powerful tool of gender identification for young babies. If you think about, I guess we don't put babies in woolen knitted things as much as we used to, but the pink and the blue of the knitted garment 
are pernicious identifiers, aren't they? I found it very confronting as a young mum because I thought I was pretty open-minded, but shopping for a, a, a boy baby or a boy child as a young mum I found so confronting because I wanted to have a deconstructive discussion with everyone that I, every person in a shop that I walked into because I'd walk into a shop and people would say, is it for a boy or a girl? And by a boy or a girl, they meant, do you want to go on the pink side or the, or the blue side, rather, or the pink side? The, I, the bizarre nature of that I just still can't quite fathom. That's exactly what's, what she's helping us fathom here. So Colette, through her kind of glory holes, if you like, is referring to the body, parts of the body. This is a very, very sexy work. She is queering knitting, queering gender, queering the kind of traditional association as well of what artists can do. What is normally known on the body, I'm oh, sorry, worn on the body, becomes the body. What would never be found in an art gallery becomes part of the art gallery DNA, part of the gallery itself. And rather than using knitting needles, she's using pickup sticks because gender is a game. Thanks for joining me today.